Thanks for having me. I'm Curtis Childs, and this talk is going to be about how we can examine our motivations to help us untangle the web of the mind. And you might be thinking, okay, I already don't get this. So like, what's the web of the mind? So let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, there are two ways that I find myself approaching situations in life. These are a couple of pictures of me up here. Well, I mean, it's not me, the person, but this is pictures of how I feel. Right? Now, what are, uh, the dynamic is, they'll have something coming up in my life or something that I'm going through, and I'm approaching it from one of two extremes. In one extreme, uh, I'm completely overwhelmed. I am anxious, I'm nervous, I'm thinking about well, what if scenario A happens, and then what if scenario B happens, and then scenario C probably won't happen. But what if it does? And I'm a little possessive of the outcome, and I'm just not able to get through it happily. But then at other times, I've just relaxed. And I think, OK, this could go this way, or it could go that way. It's going to be all right. And sometimes this difference can be really obvious and tangible. I'll tell you a fairly boring story. One time I was driving, and I was in high school, so I was maybe about 17 or 18, and I, w I was almost going to be the school year again. So I had like social anxiety. How many, do I have enough friends? Are they going to like me this year? I also had logistical anxiety, academic anxiety. I was basically balled in by the, the worries of life. And then I would just for a second, very noticeably snapped out of it. And suddenly I had those same things staring me down, but I was just feeling confident and I was feeling peaceful. And I just felt like this is going to go some way and that's going to be fine. And then it was gone. And I was back to my regular self. But I knew that, oh, that does exist. Like, that's there, just out there, being relaxed about life. But why can't I switch it on command? So I want to see a show of hands. Uh, out of the two of those, who prefers being miserable? OK, I'm just kidding. It's not really a, sh a show of hands. There will be some things that are jokes in this speech, but you don't have to laugh if they're, if they're not funny. But why can't I toggle between those? And why can't I control it? It's not like we're trying to do something really hard here if we're struggling with this. It's not like, ah, oh, I'm just really torn up because I can't win an Olympic gold medal or I can't build a rocket ship that works. Yeah, that stuff is hard. This is just, why can't I relax about my own life and, and chill out about it? So that is what I'm trying to figure out here. And what I hope to talk about today is if we start to look at the why, the motivation behind why we do what we do, that can be the key to having one of these two things get on from the other one. And this is hopefully going to lead to a tool that it's been really useful for me and hopefully it can be useful for you when you're going through the little things in life and when you're going through the day-to-day -day difficulties, which is really my favorite thing to try to talk about because those things come up so much, the little stresses, the little anxieties, the little fears that we have. But then it also can apply to the big stuff. I mean, to situations like as, as drastic as what we're going through right now. And I don't mean like the political climate. I'm talking about like what's happening in this room right now. So you might be thinking, this is not that bad. It's like a little boring. I maybe should have stayed out in the hall or gotten, gotten early lunch. But uh, now I'm here and you'll see if I leave, so I'll stay. But actually, we are going through something really intense right now because Public speaking is happening right now. This is a headline from the Times. Speaking in public is worse than death for most people. And I'm, I'm like 
thinking about you guys right now because I know how hard it is to watch somebody go through something difficult. And you're having to see me go through something that's worse than death <laughs> right now in front of you. So that, the headline is a little misleading. It's not really that bad. But public speaking is a great example for the tool that we're going to be using today. So I want to be sort of self-analyzing what's going on here as it happens through that. And how can this tool about the categories of motivation help us diffuse a situation like this? So what we're going to do in this talk is we're going to go over the ca categories of things that I've found disrupt happiness. What makes it so we're unhappy when we should have been happy? And then we're going to look at a tool. We're going to look at three universal categories of motivation, or they're sometimes called the universal categories of love, and how being able to place where we fall along that can help us navigate things like the web of the mind. We're also going to look at cells and explore the idea that your body is giving you a hint, or I would say telling you how to think. And we'll just throw on top of there repeating patterns from large and small objects on a grand scale. So uh, how can we put all this together to get something that's going to help you tomorrow when you get out of here? I want to first go in a little bit into my why. Like, why would I be up here on this stage in the first place? Why would I put myself through this? So as you heard, I'm the director of Off the Left Eye for the Swedenborg Foundation, and we make, you know, spirituality uh, tools for the mind to try to help people. And it might sound good, like you heard in my introduction, all the, this cool stuff, you have these numbers, but it's not that... It's not fun all the time. We're on YouTube. Has anybody ever been on YouTube? Is every, how friendly is everybody on YouTube? Right? Yeah, it, it's, it's not as bad as I thought it was. But people will say all kinds of negative things. You look dumb. This is dumb. But also, I have people that I... Growing up, I wasn't a guy talking about spiritual stuff all the time. And so there's a lot of people who I imagine are like checking their Facebooks now. and like, oh, what's Curtis up to? And Whoa, like what, he went off the deep end. What's going on here? So why would I dive into this so hard? It's because these tools were basically a lifesaver for me. So I love this quote. It says, something inside me just broke. That's the only way I could describe it. I want to take you through a journey, uh, a little bit of a tour of my experience of uh, major depression, and obsessive compulsive disorder, which is really where um, spirituality or, or mind tools, I don't know what we call it these days, whatever it is, consciousness upgrades, became a life raft for me. And why that happened and, and how it was helpful. So what I want to do is get, get you inside that experience, because you can hear the term depression, and before I had it or knew what it was, I thought, oh, this is just when you're you know, you're in a blue mood, you don't really want to do something today. But it's not that. It's much more uh, manic and active. And actually, it's probably a blanket term that a lot of people get shoved under with very different experiences. For me, I had this series of negative stuff in the mind that just suddenly, it was about 18 or 19, and it just suddenly started to crank up. I also got really obsessive compulsive. Do you guys know what that is? There's like, there's like a TV show that used to be on about it. Got this detective guy, I think Monk is his name, and he would, what you, but it's not fun. It's not funny at all. What you, so to give you kind of a breakdown of that, what you would have to do is, let's say like I'm talking here, and I accidentally bump this thing into the microphone, and there's some kind of trigger that's like, you got to repeat that action, let's say seven times. And if you don't, 
something's going to happen to somebody that you care about or to you or something. And, and you know it's not real, but like, what if it is? You might as well do it. So I would have to go through these things. Oh, hey, I just bumped my way into a little reveal. I don't know if anyone saw that. Okay, you didn't? Great. Uh, so I had problems, so that was one of them. But then I had all these things that were coming in and just in a way that I couldn't describe it. At the time, I didn't know I'm having depression. I just, what's happening to me? And this is what, what it felt like. So I had these categories coming in and disturbing me. The first one is what I would call existential fears. And this is not like the fear of, I'm afraid that I'm going to trip off the front of the stage if I'm making a point, or I'm afraid of spiders. This is more like, what if I have no value as a human being? Or, or what if I'm going to lose something that I can never get back somehow? Or, or I needed to do something and now I've missed my opportunity. Do you get what I'm saying? Like these are nebulous, but, but very high threat level. Like these are sort of cosmic threats. And I, never, I didn't really have them before, but then they started to come in and they would be really strong. And, I would ha and this would be part of the motivation to do the obsessive compulsive stuff. So it was coming in and just kind of stealing happiness away. Then at the same time, there was people drama. Which this is the opposite. This is very tangible. And you guys already know what this is. This is somebody says something to you and you're, what did they mean by that? Or, why didn't they say this thing? Or, why doesn't this person like me and I want them to like me? Or, why doesn't this person do what I want? Or, why do these two people, what are they talking about? Whatever it is, it's very tangible and it's very clear. But when you're in the depressive state, it gets ramped up even more. You're, you're worried about what do people think about you. You're worried about the status of all your relationships and things. And that starts to come in and contribute to this state of mind. Just picture this wonderful state of mind that we're starting to build here. So that comes in, those two things are both attacking at the same time. But then add on top of that, my, one of my favorites, overblown realistic fears. So I was on a plane coming to this conference, right? That plane is not going to crash, but it could, right? Planes have, haven't they? Oh, I just heard a sound. I know that was the engine falling out but nobody knows it yet, and they're going to take out, right? These are overblown realistic fears. They're not like existential fears, which are maybe they don't even exist, the category of element that we're talking about. But these things, they could happen. And when are you going to be free from the potential for that? Anything could happen in any situation. So as soon as you realize, oh, the plane landed, I'm fine. W what if I can't get to the hotel? You know? And what if when I get to the hotel, I can't sleep very well, which is true. <laughs> And it just goes on and on and on. And what I want you to start thinking about is think about the combination of these coming in at the same time and the problem that that creates for when you're trying to have a happy mood. Because you can think about the, what tools do you need to be equipped with to deal with existential fears. I mean, these are broad cosmic things that maybe I've got some kind of mantra or a prayer or something about peace. And I can sort of get with that. And it's, it's this deep thing. And maybe I'm trusting in God or higher power. But then, bam, somebody says something to me that sets me off. Those are totally different mechanisms. And it's, it seems like as soon as I get strong against one, I get hit by the next one and hit by the next one. So these three acting in tandem really work to debilitate you. And we're only halfway through the, the chart, right? And the cool thing is this next one is, is completely not like the others. So in the middle of that, there's this like, I want to be a really, really great 
Like, I want to be an exemplary person. And am, am I missing my chance here? And, oh, you just, you should have done that there. You could have seized opportunity A. Whatever it is, that's starting to haunt you as well. And look at how weird that is. Because the other three are, like, about survival. Am I going to be able to survive life? But this one is like, oh, I, I got to go out and seize opportunity. And have those different flavors mixing at the same time, all of them tugging at you with various kinds of fears. It makes it really difficult to get any kind of footing. And then you add in what I would call life events. These are not scientific terms for all of these. This is, I made these up. <laughs> but this is my best encapsulation. What I'm hoping is that you can be just thinking about, okay, what are, what are your circles? You know, I'm talking about a depressed mindset, but it's not like, now that I'm not depressed, these aren't there. They're just not quite as loud. But this is the kind of stuff that comes in and bothers me in my regular consciousness. So maybe you see yourself represented up there. Maybe you, maybe you have different circles to fill in. But I do think the same kind of phenomenon is happening at a lower level for all of us. And having it amped up really got me to realize, oh yeah, that is what's going on. It's these different categories of things that are coming in. Not necessarily comprehensive. Life events are... Uh, it's not just something happens, but you have a hard time dealing with it. This is when you're actually, the tire pressure sensor light did come in, come on in the car, on the highway. Which actually did happen to my wife, the car is, is at home right now, and we got that thing fixed like two times, and anyway, that's added on, and life events can add so much stress, and, and actually be an anchor point for these other things to get into, and then finally, Finally, there's negative motives, which is the part of me that I feel like I'm, I'm the problem there. I'm not proud of it. Why did I have, the, I can't believe I just had this thought about that person. That is so rude or that's so obnoxious. Uh, I, wh why am I so petty about this thing? Why can't I just let this thing go? Why can't I live up to whatever ideal it is? So rounding it out, there's a pretty amazing set of influences. And this is what I'm talking about when I say the web of the mind. Now, what really makes it a web is that they're all entangled with each other. And I find that you can have like a life event that triggers some kind of existential fear. And when you're in that, that gets you to think about the people drama. Well, maybe I don't have value because this one person said to me, you don't have any value. People don't usually say that, but they'll say things that you interpret as that. And when you try to go after one, it seems like the next one's there, ready to get you. And in the end, it just becomes this thing that's really inescapable. And I would try to figure out, how do I cope with all this stuff at once? What tool do you use to go after all this? Because you can't really put this stuff neatly into one category. I could say, Oh, well, the thing about all this is it's all just not true. It's all just false. And if I just ignore it, it will go away. But, but there's, there are actually life events. There are actually people and relationships and things you have to manage. So that's not it. Even if existential fears is not real. Okay, well, it could just be that it's me against the world and I got to strengthen myself, right? The more strong I get it, in whatever way, emotional resiliency or, or training or tools or something, then it's going to be good. But no, because in the... In the negative motives and in the, the ambition to be better than other people, uh, I'm the problem. So what, what could we possibly get? What common factor do all these things have if we're trying to design a medicine for all of them? And what I realized in, and partially realized through these, this tool that we're going to be looking at today is the thing that all these have in common is 
me. Which might seem obvious because it's my life, but this is the one data point that we have. These are all central around my sense of myself, and they all gain their energy by perceived threats to something surrounding that. So that's what we have to work with. And now I'm going to talk about how do you use a tool to get in there based on that handhold we have, that it's me. And remember, we came here, you agreed to learn tools about consciousness. So I'm going to be talking about motivation for why we do things and which categories I feel like should be prioritized. I'm not trying to give you a morality lecture. I'm just trying to show you this is what, this is what worked for me. And I feel this obligation to pass it along to you. So what we need to do is identify our categories. So there's three universal categories of motivation here. And I'm going to give you the terms, but let them be relatively empty at first till, we, till I fill them in, because they're words and everybody's got associations with particular words, especially this first one. So the three universal categories of motivation that I could be coming from that could help free me from this. The first one, love of our self-image. And again, tread lightly with that one, because I know that loving yourself is really important, but this is something distinctly different, and hopefully I can clearly communicate that to you as it goes on. The next one is love of sensory gratification, uh, the love of pleasure, something like that. And then finally, love of usefulness. And looking at how these things interact is how we're going to get our tool. So first, let's focus on love of self-image, because we've got to meet these things and we've got to become fluent in them if they're going to be anything that pops into your mind and helps you out. So love of self-image, the best... Uh, okay, I'll introduce it to you through a little clip of a video, because what we do is we make videos. And you'll see in this video, I, we use the term love of the self in there. I like love of self-image better, but we made the video a while ago. But it shows that we're just trying to get language around the thing. So what exactly is it? Well, this is how I see love of self-image. If I was going to have a really healthy day, it would be about prioritizing the types of love. There are three universal categories of love or of motivation that drive people. And it might not seem intuitive to label them this way, but work with me for a minute. The fundamental categories are love of usefulness, love of the world, and love of the self. The way we interact with them and the way they're prioritized in us dictates everything. But to really believe that, you've got to meet them first. So yeah, I'm mowing the lawn, but check it. I'm using one of those no pollution real mowers. So there it is, an action. But what's the essence of this action? What's the love that drives it? Which category is it? Well, that all depends on why I'm doing it. I might be doing it so that I look good. I want people to notice that I'm doing something good for the planet. I want to be part of a superior, eco-conscious, hip, cutting-edge group of people that are like so much more enlightened than the rest of the country and are the real heroes in the great struggle for blah, 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 blah. Everybody, meet love of the self. As the name implies, I have love of the self when I'd give anything for the cause of me. My number one priority is to benefit the self, whether it's about increasing its reputation, popularity, raising its official or unofficial status, power, influence. I'm the first and last thing on my mind, the apple of my own eye. But let's back up. 
So that video is a little old. It's a little embarrassing. But you can tell it's old because what, uh, what's the go-to eco-friendly car in there? It, my 2006 Prius. <laughs> um, but I want to choose an issue that I do care about, but look at why am I getting into that issue. So does that make it, okay, is that a big starting point for what we're talking about when we're talking about love of our self-image? Today, I think we would most likely call it ego or something like that. How I would phrase it is love of self-image is the belief that the highest joy in life comes from eminence or power. And those sound like grand words that you might only be interested in if you're a dictator, but we do this on a micro level all the time. We're looking for eminence, like we're looking to be the coolest person in the room or the coolest person in a group or the smartest or whatever it is. And power, maybe I want uh, to control a conversation or I want you to think like I think. Whatever it is I'm doing, this is love of our self-image. And I'm sure we can think of other people that have that, right? So... If I, let's analyze me giving this speech. If I'm giving this speech and I'm operating, just suspending disbelief and saying that this is a, this is a category I could be motivated from. If I'm giving this speech from my love of self-image, why am I up here on this stage? So that you will all adore me, right? Which I know is not happening right now, but, but that's what it is. And it can be hard to tease that out, but like, let's say there was somehow there was a deal in the back room back there where some kind of d mystical being sat me down and said, look, this speech can go one of two ways, and I'm going to let you choose which it is. You know, scenario A, everybody is going to just be enthralled by whatever you're doing out there, and they're going to think you're so awesome and so wise and, and you're really well-dressed, and just kidding, that one's not realistic, but they're going to be impressed by you, but they're not really going to get anything out of it. They're going to walk out the door and th it's not going to really last with them. It's not going to help them with anything they're dealing with in their life, but they will go away thinking, man, that guy's awesome. Okay. Or scenario B, it's all right. It falls a little flat in the room, but the seed is planted in people's minds and they go out and the next day or the day after or five days after or a week after, and they're dealing with their own web of the mind whatever it is that fills their own little blue circles and has been gnawing at them for years, and they remember something, and it helps them, and it goes from despair to hope in some place, you can have that. So which one do you want? Love of self-image would say, I want the first one. Thank you. That's the point, okay? That's what it is to be motivated by love of self-image. Love of self-centric gratification in the video, it was called love of the world. You know, we talk about things being worldly or superficial. Let's get to know what this category is a little bit better with a little bit more of that video. It could be that I'm not mowing for those reasons at all. It might be that I'm here doing this, but I'm not really thinking about this green mower or this green grass, but something else that's green. Love of the world isn't just the love of money. At its essence, it's also the love of pleasure, if that makes sense. Things that are visually pleasing, pleasing to the ear, pleasing to the palate, and all other kinds of intense, expensive, decadent stuff. When love of the world is in charge, that stuff is the goal, the highest good. Life is about creature comforts, about seeking out sensory experiences of whatever kind floats your boat, or just hoarding cash. Maybe I have an eco-mo business, not because I care about the planet, but because I know that other people do, and I know I can exploit that to get some coin. If a better way to make more money came up, man, I ditched this so fast. So there it is, love of the world. Not so bad, but not so good either. Not really satisfied, living for future gratification. Meh. 
And in its extreme, love of the world would be, or love of sensory gratification, I know that's confusing, oh, sorry, um, <laughs> would be you believe that the great, not that you don't enjoy other things, but you believe the point of it, the greatest pleasure is in some kind of opulent surroundings, or taken to the extreme, you want you know, to, to take assets from other people and amass wealth and be the one who's, who's on top of that pile. So that's what it's like when love of sensory gratification is in charge. And you can think about these things in their, in their extremes. You know, it, it, this is just to differentiate. So love of self-image, it's like if it got everything it wanted, you'd be some kind of dictator. Right? You would get to, everyone has to worship you and you have complete authority and control and that's what it wants you know, when it gets to go out to infinity. And then, love of the world, what it would just want is to be the richest person in the world, surrounded by the best things, get the best sensory experiences. And you sometimes see, you might say that that's, that's pretty, does that really lurk in the human heart at times? Well, what happens sometimes when the reins get pulled off of people and they have everything? Well, have there been a lot of news stories recently about people who have access to all the resources in the world? Sometimes uh, it can get away from you there. So the, we're, we're two-thirds of the way through our tools and we have yet to see uh, a hero emerge, right? So there's a lot of pressure on this last category of motivation, love of usefulness. So what is that? Why isn't it just love of love or love of goodness, uh, hopefully I can introduce you to what exactly I'm talking about there and what this can be when you come from it. Oh, I almost forgot. Oh, I feel like I want to say, if with love of uh, sensory gratification, if I'm giving this speech based on that, then why am I up on this stage? J just to get through it. Right, because I, I just want to do well enough that I can still get compensated and, and that I can go out and see some nice restaurants and do whatever. It just get, it doesn't matter what happens in this room. The point is what happens out of this room, right? I mean, that's the motivation there. Okay, okay. And at the end, we can have you all guess of which one I'm actually operating from. Okay, so here's, again, wipe that out. Here's love of usefulness and what that can be. But don't we deserve a little bit more? I mean, can't this simple act, this little part of routine, really be something transcendent, something inspiring, a genuinely healthy action? Yeah, it can. And not because I'm having some mystical experience while I do it, not because I do it exceptionally fast or well, but because, put mundanely enough, I want to do this because it's good. Because of the good this does for the world. I'm not loving how it makes me look, I'm not loving what it gets for me, but I've kept a little bit of crud out of the atmosphere. And so here a little kid takes a breath of fresh air that's good for their lungs, and I'm loving that. People can sit in peace on their patio, and I'm loving that. Oil doesn't leak into the water supply so someone can drink and not carry toxins around with them, and I'm loving that. I'm loving the work and the health for my body so I can help others. I love the lawn space I'm creating for the kids and the dogs and the people that will play in it. The feelings they'll get out of it. I may not even meet some of these people, and they'll probably never draw the connection between these two events, but I know. I know the good this will do, and I'm holding that in my mind. The healthy kid, the clean water, the place to play. I know the function of this activity, its service to the common good, its use. And that's what it is to love usefulness. This is the sweet spot. That's high quality fuel for a mind. Okay, so that, oh yeah, sure, you can clap for that. Yeah, finally, something positive, and I hope to differentiate 
love of usefulness from just regular being good. Um, it's just something that uh, Wilson Van Dusen wrote a really good book on this. Uh, usefulness is you're thinking about the impact of your action as you're doing the action. So it can be as simple as when I'm doing the dishes, it's customary for me to just be thinking about how I don't want to be doing the dishes. Right? Or I'm thinking about some inane ego-based thing uh, or, or going over some show that I was watching that I, I didn't need to be watching. But instead, if I focus my mind on actually as literally simple as thinking about the next time somebody uses this plate, that can be an amazing transformer of what you're doing in that interaction. So there, the gentleman mowing with that lawnmower, uh, if he's, when he's doing it, thinking about not what it means for his reputation, but what it means for the, what the next person is going to feel in the chain reaction from this, that's love of usefulness. Does that make sense? Okay, so if I'm doing this speech from love of usefulness, then why, what do I care about? Why am I on this stage? You! I care about you. <laughs> I imagine that, that I'm actually, what I'm thinking about, which is very hard to do when you have to give a speech, because it's hard to give speeches, but what I'm thinking about is that, that time I was projecting in the future when something from this could land in your mind and do something good, like when you really need it, when you're really in some kind of dark space. Like, let's say the one I was in last night when it was like four in the morning and I still couldn't sleep because of the jet lag thing, right? And I was like, oh, I have to give this speech tomorrow. What am I going to do? That's the kind of place. We all enter those places, and I want to have it. Oh, wait, remember this thing about this? Use these tools so now I feel better. That's the point. That's love of usefulness. And as I was prepping for this speech and stuff, whenever I was thinking about it from love of self-image, you're stressed out. You're fearful because if the point is, I got to give a speech, and the thing that's going to happen at the end of the speech is, uh, people, how much are they going to clap? Are they going to clap like, okay, or like, I wish I was in lunch right now, or are they going to clap harder, or what are they going to, is anyone going to woo, or are they not going to woo? Don't tell me if you, yeah. Okay. What was I worrying about then? That, 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 um, that is a stressful way to live. And also, it never gets better. You can never be safe if you're operating from that. Because I gave a talk at this conference two years ago, and it did fine. People clapped, and it was great, right? So you'd think, okay, I already did it, right? There's no more need to worry. But the love of self-image is, is like, well, that doesn't matter. This one matters, right? It doesn't matter how much you've built up. Think if you were... Uh, famous musician and you sold like a hundred thousand copies of your first album and you're like this is so great and then the next album you sell fifty thousand copies of it how does that make you feel not good right so so this is how great love of self-image is is now selling fifty thousand copies of an album hurts your feelings right that's the world love of self-image is trying to give me. Love of sensory gratification, it's, it, that one just, I don't see anything in it, so it's not that high on my radar. But when you get to love of usefulness, then when I'm starting to think about it, it just relaxes because you understand the point of why you're here. Suddenly it makes sense, and that's what you're doing. So do you remember this? 
We were talking about this a little while ago, and I do hope that if you're not feeling like you're up there, you start to fill in, okay, what, what is my stuff I'm trying to get out of? Because you must all have something you're trying to make your way out of. Or why, would you, why would you come to a conference like this? Right? Why, why would you spend the time and energy to improve unless there's something we're trying to overcome? It could be something that's making you afraid, but it also could be something you feel like is an impediment to your ability to be useful to the world and do what they do. So how are we going to apply these tools to that mess? It doesn't seem like they go together. Maybe they don't. I don't know. I haven't checked these next slides, so just kidding. But before we get in there, I do feel like we need to get a little more familiar with love of usefulness. And because it can seem like if we're going to be depending on this thing to bring us into, to, to in the right priorities, bring us to happiness, it's got to have a lot of potential. It can't just be, okay, you give up, give up the stuff that really makes you happy and eat your vegetables instead. That can't be it. So what, what can love of usefulness get us to? And I want to start talking about getting into a cellular state of mind. And when I say cellular state of mind, I'm not talking about cellular telephone. I mean the cells in your body. And how is your body teaching you how to think? All these traditions around the world have the human form as sacred in some way. Which at first glance, you might think, that makes sense because you know, people are the ones involved in it, so we're going to have a natural bias towards the human form. But actually, I don't know if that does make sense. Because actually living in a body, it's not that great. <laughs> it's, it's often a maintenance issue. Um, I was bemoaning the, the troubles of being in my 30s before, uh, which some of you are like, just wait, you'll see. So w wouldn't it be that we would be eager in these traditions to say, we're out of here. Like the, the human thing, the body, and you gotta, and you gotta make sure you're not sweating and all this stuff. We're gonna leave that behind and we're, there's some greater form. There's some kind of giant robot that you're gonna be or like you're gonna be a, a cloud or something like that. Why is this, why this, when we go to these aspirational traditions, it's actually we're getting deeper into the, the veneration we're calling the, the human form holy in that. Why is it? And I wanna look not just at the form like of that stock silhouette cut out there, but let's look at it on a cellular level because the human form is a composite form, right? Or composite form, whichever you like. It's made of a million, billion, trillion, you can tell I'm a biologist, right? Of, I'm not, of all these little cells. And the cells are operating, and I would say the cells are doing a lot of stuff. They're making proteins, they're transporting oxygen, doing celly things, replicating things. Right? You, right, okay, I'm, I'm a biologist, like I said. I'm not. I took some biology classes, but I'm not. It doesn't matter for this, because we know cells do stuff. That's not really up for debate. And what, what I'm going to argue here is that there's a reason why they're doing stuff. That these little cells have a why and what they're doing. And I don't want to wade into whether there's like a little cell mind in there that's thinking, well, to be or not to be, what should I contribute to the body? Should I not? Should I strike it out? I don't know. I don't think that they have that. But if you look at their actions, I don't know, we'll leave that a black box. If you look at the actions of cells, 
there is very clearly a reason for what they're doing things. Why, why do cells do things? For, yeah, for, for health, for the health of the body, right? The, and a lot of the times, you look at cells together forming these tissues, a lot of the stuff that they're doing doesn't even directly help them. The, the, let's say, red blood cells that are transporting oxygen, they're not transporting it to a little stash for themselves to save up later. Like, like where's the oxygen? It's down that capillary. But don't tell the liver cells. They're taking it out, and they're giving it to everybody in the body, right? The, the, um, this principle extends to all of them. And even so, so extreme that it's not this... We're, okay, we have an uneasy truce, all the cells in the body. You give me what I need and I'll give you what you need, but as soon as you violate the contract, I'm out of here. Right? You guys know about apoptosis, which is a cell basically saying, I'm in the way, and you have pre-programmed cell death, that they'll actually sacrifice their spot for the good of the whole. So these cells, as far as I can tell, think about, put yourself in the mind of a cell. You're, you're giving everything you have to the body and getting everything you need from the body. If you are a cell in the liver and you're just detoxifying, 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 that's 9.30, detoxify, detoxify. And everything you need, you're not worrying about how do I deal with some kind of invasive virus if it comes up because there's an immune system to do that. You're not worried about securing food or oxygen because there's, other, there's a whole stomach system that's going on for that and lungs and stuff. You're getting everything you can from the body as well. So that's the mindset of a cell. And so what if we took that and applied it to human beings? What if we got into a cellular state of mind? What could that look like? So I want to play you a clip that envisions a little bit. This is taking love of usefulness. What if we actually put it into action? Okay, breathe in. You are the human form. You are the lungs. This is what it looks like when one person breathes. This is what two look like. But when the human race breathes together, it looks like this. We pull in ideas like oxygen, gathering them through inspiration. In our lungs, the molecules are taken by blood cells to move out into the body. But on the grand scale, the red blood cells are the communicators, the authors, the educators, the content producers that harness this idea and carry it into the mighty, rushing flow of information. And then, boom! Everyone can get it. Every cell can tap into it and use those ideas to power their processes. Whether they're creating a selective barrier to let helpful things in and keep harmful things out. Or maintaining the structures we depend on for support. Or trying to perceive what's really going on with the situation. And all the other billions of actions and projects that build on each other and interact and interconnect in the billions of different ways that every part contributes to the whole on a scale and with a volume that you and I can hardly imagine, let alone fully understand or comprehend. Okay, ready? Exhale. We expel the old ideas, 
things that are no longer needed or don't belong or that we've replaced with something better. And it flows. People from all over the world, from every walk of life, get grabbed by passions to affect positive change, to improve the lives of those around them, and they pump it out through networks, through organizations, spreading that passion to others who have the know-how and the means. Those with power build amazing things. And they're fed by people who have an unsatisfiable hunger to learn. How can we make this process quicker, cleaner, better? It's the most amazing machine that exists, but it's a delicate balance. Because a bloodstream that can so elegantly transport good ideas can just as easily transport bad ones. Some units aren't working for the good of the body, are stealing from the body, taking advantage or taking control. Is cancer, anything other than cells that pursue their own growth at any cost and without limits, without any thought about the whole. But we fight back, closing ranks to heal the parts that have been damaged and clean out disease. And then the hands and muscles build so now the eye can see farther than ever. And then the optic nerve makes it so that what the eye sees, everyone sees. Let's us see something so far away and then the heart lets us see what's so close. Okay, breathe in. When the whole body, every part is working together, we call that health. But when everybody's doing their part in the great body, every single person contributing to the whole so that we all benefit, so that everyone's discoveries, patience, lessons learned, hard work, and examples of love lift us all up. When every little part of every cell is feeding from the whole and giving back to the whole, when there's health for the whole human race together as one complex, immense, intimate, interdependent system, we call that heaven. Like, that's exciting. That's cool. Suddenly, when you think about love of usefulness or this cellular state of mind applied and everyone's participating and buying in, then, oh, this really could be something. And you think of the joy from being in that machine, and it's cool. And, and oh, that was kind of cool how at the end they threw this little quote in that, that talked about it as it's like, it's like heaven. So that, that's cool. As long as he doesn't start talking about, like, actual heaven, heaven, you know. We are going to talk about that just a little bit. So you saw that quote was from Emmanuel Swedenborg. And I want to give you, this is, so we have the concepts and the tools that we're meant to be applying here. This is the proposed metaphysical explanation for why this stuff works and why it shows up and why it resonates in the heart and mind. So the quote was from Emmanuel Swedenborg. He lived a couple hundred years ago and he was T-C-C-H-E in his time. Because he was, this is, a, as I can understand this conference, we're going, we got science, and we're trying to present that. We've also got, you know, humanities, and then the, today it moves to whatever I'm doing right now, spirituality, what do we want to call it? And we're trying to get those things to dialogue with each other. Because we feel a little bit let down by this dichotomy where it's saying you can either have a religious system that doesn't really 
honor what's being taught about the physical world through scientific discovery, or you can go only with science and say there's nothing at all beyond the physical world. To reconcile those is what I see as the great task of what we're doing here today. And what I would say is what the world needs right now. So in his day, Swedenborg was in that same position because he was one of the most famous and most successful and brightest scientists in the world. He was going, traveling around Europe, and they would announce in the newspaper when he went somewhere, and he was doing all these firsts for his country and all this kind of stuff. And then, mid-50s, started to have what you would now call spiritual experiences, near-death experiences, although not actually near-death, spiritual transformative experiences. And so he decided, hey, I'm gonna, I've got to tell the world this story, because he saw how the physical world worked as best they knew it back then. But then he said, look, there's a whole spiritual dimension to this. And they're not separate. They're actually so united that you could say the spiritual world is the cause. And what we see here is the effect. That's how together they are. And so when you're looking at the idea of that video was saying, look, wouldn't it be nice if we all got together and lived in this way? And that would create this thing that would feel like heaven. Well, that's what heaven actually is. If you think about heaven as a state of mind that creates something on the spiritual level, you think of, we, we saw the potential for what if everybody in the world got together and lived that way. Well, heaven, or whatever you want to call it, the summerlands, people have all kinds of different names for it. The place when you are in a near-death experience, like Pim was talking about, and you go somewhere, and it's all love, and it's all these amazing people, and everything's great. That is a community of people that have you know, left the physical behind but are completely immersed in this kind of love. That that is what's driving them. Because what makes heaven heaven is this selfless desire to do what helps. And, not that, and going even farther, we're actually looking at, he says, if you take the function, groups of people can get together and do something. Right? This is what we do here. You have businesses, you have organizations, you have nonprofits that are all working hard to do something. In fact, if you're thinking about when did you maybe experience love of usefulness, you're probably thinking about some time when you were part of a cause that you believed in. Right? When you were putting that together, working with people to achieve some goal. Well, this heaven, as Swedenborg describes it, is that. All people working together to do all these different functions. But if you start taking these little pieces together, you imagine each one of those is like a little a community. People talk about their, their spirit group or something. But they're all doing the different parts of what's needed and working together. That is like heaven. And that our form actually, by function, reflects this larger growing together of humanity. We talked about small and large patterns, right? We've been looking through the physical world and seeing, oh, that's, that's cool. Small things and big things kind of look like each other. You have something like the solar system, which is huge and massive, and then you have something teeny tiny like an atom, and it seems like they've got a dense center and there's stuff orbiting. It seems like it's kind of the same. Well, you're the atom. That there is this grand community of love that when it gets together and goes into all of its useful functions and puts it all in and you're all outputting something that's love together, that's, that's what it is to be human. That, that is humanity. And actually our little bodies here are, are sort of a physical effect of that. So you are part of, you are a reflection of 
this kind of love of usefulness. Your body has that written into it. And this could be part of why you, it's so disturbing when somebody misuses, like, uses their body for violence or something like that. Because not just the effect of it, but you're like, but there's something disturbing about this. You are a model of love. The way that all the different parts and organs in you work together and selflessly try to come up with health that cares for everyone, that is love. That's love personified. And to see it used for something that's not love is just this clash. That shouldn't be like that. And to get into a mindset like that, the angelic mindset, you think about when do you say, oh, thanks, you're an angel. It's when something go, somebody goes out of their way to do something that's genuinely altruistic. That's the state of mind we can be getting into right now through organizing these categories correctly. So it's not, I'm not here to tell you, you have to never do love of self-image or love of sensory gratification. It's just about getting them right. Which one is the main thing and then which one is a supporting role. So here's a little clip about how we begin to set those in order. Now if you're like me, you're jumping around between these three types of motivation all the time, usually without even realizing it. It's not that these other two types are evil and you've got to get rid of them and never talk to them again. Like I said before, it's all about priorities. We're all born with these three types of love inside us, but who's going to end up in charge? There are three basic vacancies in us. Let's call them the head, the body, and the feet. The head's in charge, it calls the shots, it sees and decides the course, the body responds and moves, and the feet just do what everyone tells them to. If love of the self takes the head, then I'm running for governor because I want to be governor. I want that title, I want that praise, I want that recognition. Getting kickbacks from lobbyists and the salary won't be that bad either. And as for the purpose of the position, the legislation, society at large, the problems people are having and how I can help, the suffering I can prevent, oh yeah, yeah, I mean, it's good to do some of that stuff to get the people's affection. It's a good vehicle to get me where I want to go. But if love of the world is up top, then who cares how I look? This whole company exists to make me money. I'll fabricate profits to drive my stock up, I'll exploit loopholes, I'll cheat people out of their retirement money. Obviously, these two combinations don't work out well, for me or for the rest of the world. But if these three forces end up in the order they were meant to be in, the order that makes us healthy and human, that I'm doing my job in integrity for the good of the world, or I'm making my little donation to Habitat for Humanity because I'm thinking about what it feels like to have somewhere to live, the joy of having a clean, safe space for the most important things in your life. The tax break is cool, but it's not a deal breaker if it doesn't work out. If nobody notices, okay. If someone does, well, who doesn't like to be appreciated? And under the umbrella of loving usefulness, the other two can be in tune, laid back. I'm not trying to lecture you about it. I'm not just trying to say, don't be bad, be good. Everyone knows that already. But for me, being aware of the categories and cognizant of which one I'm operating from is like being given the way out of a maze. If I'm mowing for the first two reasons, yeah, what's growing in the yard ends up the same, but what's growing in me, it's night and day. Watch the way anxiety and tension follow these first two. I would never realize, oh, it's not about figuring out the minutia of trying to be seen as exactly the person I want to be seen as, or being surrounded with just the things I want to be surrounded by, which always seems like I'm getting close, but never quite satisfied. This shows me, dude, it's a trap. You're on the whole wrong freeway. Universal categories of love. That's good. Because we don't want to have it where somebody starts clapping and then stops, and there's no, no round of applause there. That's the problem. It's because it's awkward for everybody. Um, so that is, I'm not just saying that. To me, this has been incredibly useful as I try to work my way out of the web of the mind, as we've been saying it. So what I'm going to do next 
because it may not really be apparent, how do these two things go together? The web of the mind that I was talking about and these categories of love and how you prioritize them. So I'm gonna, this is gonna be the frontier where I give you how it's worked for me. And what I've found in sharing stuff like this online is rather than I try to say, here's exactly what you're going through and here's exactly what you do about it, I tell you what my story is and what's been true for me. And then people can immediately, and I just find this whenever you share anything, this is why people are so invested in, we, we have to talk about this. This can't be in the shadows. You've got to talk about it. Because as soon as you tell your story, two things happen. One is people come up and say, I'm going through the same thing. And the other one is people say, well, that, that got me thinking about my own life in a way that was useful. So what I'll do is share this with you. And it's like something I'm still figuring out. So, you know, it's just a few minutes. One more tool I want to introduce for that is the idea of a cell versus an amoeba. We talked about being in the cellular state of mind. Do you guys know what amoeba is? It's probably the most charismatic microorganism that's out there. They're these little blobs that walk around. They're a single cell. This quote is actually saying that amoebas are a lot like some of our cells. But what's the big difference? Amoeba goes it alone. Whereas a cell is a part of a, an organism. Could be us, could be some other animal. So it gets me thinking about, you know, when these things, threats come up in my mind, how would an amoeba feel these threats versus how a cell would feel these threats? That's a hilariously strange line, but I like it. So here we have everything that's going on in my mind. If you put yourself back into the categories and what, what was going on for me that made it so that I couldn't be happy even when things were going well. Even when there was no threat, I had this stuff bearing down and bearing in on me. So here's how we can break it down one by one. So if we're thinking about those, do you remember when I was talking about existential fears? That was just an hour ago. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. When we were talking about those existential fears, these, these big cosmic underpinnings of, hey, something is going to go drastically wrong for you. Really, what gave them their ammunition was the threat of some kind of loss of joy. And when you look at fear, really that's what gives it its purchase usually, is that you're going to miss out on something, or you are going to not have potential to accomplish something, or you're, going to, you're not going to be able to feel a certain kind of happiness that you want. And if I'm thinking in an amoebic, amoebic state of mind, where I'm thinking it's me against the world, which is the, the love of self-image state of mind, because there, what is the, the core of that is, okay, there's a couple hundred people in this room and there's me. If the greatest joy in life comes from being the greatest one, I've got competition. This is me against all of you. That's the love of self-image. That's sort of the amoeba's world, which is whatever comes around that corner could be a threat to me. I've got to find my next meal. Versus a cell in the body is thinking about what's good for the whole and that the greatest joy comes from being part of this community where we can exercise love and do useful things for each other. So when I get this existential fear coming in and it's saying, what if you have no value and you, then you won't feel the, the joy of whatever, what that is, is it's saying your highest joy, you won't achieve it. But if my highest joy is doing something helpful for people or I know that I can cultivate that and get it to be that, how, how accessible is that? Is that hard to do? Is there a limited supply of that? Right? How, how many people can be the best person in the world? One. 
right? So we go from having things that are very scarce to having things that are simple, humble, accessible for everyone, and actually positive feedback loops where when I'm living from the love of usefulness, not that there isn't, not that I don't care who I am, not that I don't know who I am, not that I don't like nice meals, but it's for the thing that I know is that, that my passion, what I really go after, is how can I help in whatever form I, my particular help is in whatever little part of the world I'm supposed to be. That, when I think about it like that, I'm not, I'm not vulnerable to existential fears anymore because I'm not out against the world. I know that the joy that's going to come to me is this universally accessible joy from that. To me, that's been the difference. Now, these negative motives and the people drama that I was talking about, so what's the, like, the Venn diagram of those? Where do they overlap? Let's say jealousy. Let's say you really want what somebody else has. And it's hard not to have jealousy, but I have been able to look and say, well, what gives jealousy its purchase? Because there's plenty of people who do things I can't do that I don't, I don't want to do. So I'm not jealous anyway. But what it really is, is you think they have joy that you wish you had, right? So if I think that the greatest joy in life is this very limited resource of, let's say, back to when I'm in high school, and oh, this person is really popular, man, that would be the best thing in the world to be that popular. And only a few people can be it. Ah, that's what I really want. Or this person has a really nice view from their balcony, in their condo, and if I had that, then I would be happy. Then the jealousy kicks in. But if I think those are the highest joys, but if I see those as supporting joys, like they're fine, but they're not the good stuff. They're not what's really gonna last and make me who I am. Then the stress is gone. Because it's like, okay, that would be nice, but you're not worried about little side courses when the main thing is universally accessible and humble. If you're talking about this stuff in life, this is a little bit like you almost need an extra tool for this. But I'll tell you a story about uh, my grandfather, who um, my middle name is after him, but I never got to meet him because he died before I was born. But I was told a story about him when he was dying. So he had, his condition was deteriorating, so he couldn't talk anymore. And he would just, but he could write, he could sketch things on a, on a notepad. And I've seen these little sketches that he did. He could write out words. And there was a lot of, you know, he was, he was pretty young to be going. So this was going to leave a big hole in, in the family and, and all this. And there was a lot of worry and confusion of what's going to happen. And we, they didn't know exactly when he was going to go, if it was going to be soon or if it was going to be later. And my grandmother asked him, what do you think is going to happen? Where, where are you going to go? Like, when are you going to go? Do you think it'll be painful? Well, what's going to happen? And he, he wrote on the pad of paper. He was a very spiritual-minded man. And he said, I hope the Lord will use me as his best for everyone. And that is so bulletproof. When I think on that now, I use that in my own mind when I'm worried about what's going to happen. How's my speech going to go today? Am I going to make my flight? I hope the Lord is going to use me as his best for everyone. So this will be, there's a greater plan, and what do I care about in there? Everyone. Because if suddenly the, goal, the happiness of everybody, this is giving me little goosebumps, the happiness of everybody is the point, how vulnerable are we then? 
Because that is what we feed from. So for him to say, look, whatever's best for everyone, that's what I want to be. That, I'm not just saying that to say, give up your personal happiness for that. That makes you personally happy. When I do that, when these things creep into my mind today, tomorrow, and say, look, this is going to happen. If I say, just even just the phrase in my mind, whatever, you've you got to find your phrases that work for you. This one has particular meaning for me. You, you'll find one that means something for you. But if I say, I hope the Lord will use me as his best for everyone, I've ne- it's just like a little teeny miracle. Like the way that that diffuses that and that the power of loving usefulness. And the same thing with I, I want to be great. Because what's the fuel for the fire in that? It's the idea that there's something out there that, that is really like you can have this amazing life versus the life that the rest of us had to leave. But it's not true. Because the amazing life is the life all of us live together. Is that community. That is what happiness is. Yeah, all right. And, uh, and, and I, think, I think that's actually true. I know it's a good sounding thing to say, but the more I dig in is, I think that that's really how it is. A cool way to think about whenever I get some thought in my head that says, because we get sort of propositioned by thoughts all the time and say, look, this is how you should think about life. This is how you should consider life. I think about, can that mindset survive in, in the body? If every cell was operating from that mindset, what kind of organism is that going to create? And just to have that as a filter can be the difference. And when you're in the position that I'm in, where you're struggling every day to get out of these thoughts and feelings, this is the map. This is the compass. This is what lets me do that. So I thought we should end here with some inspiring images of of gut bacteria. (laughs) Because I want to emphasize that I'm not saying... If you think at all about what people think of you, you're not doing this right. Or if you think at all about, am I going to make money on this or have nice things, you're not doing this right. Everything, something that's cool about this is, these are all, oh, look, my laser pointer. These are all going to be part of life. That's fine. That's actually how we were made to be. That is the system. It's just about where are they? Because you can actually have a love of self-image that serves a love of usefulness. There are times when you're, you, you want to work on yourself, you want to do well, because you know you can help more people if you do well, that can be great. Love of sensory gratification, if you're taking some kind of vacation to recharge, to get back in there, that can be really useful. There can be joys in that. He still hasn't told us why we're looking at the gut bacteria. Because those are cells in there that aren't part of the body. They are just working for themselves, but they're doing something useful that helps the whole, aren't they? And that we need them. And think of that in yourself, your own <laughs> spiritual gut bacteria that are making it so you can do what you... And particularly, they're in there with digestion, is how we take things in and use them. If I didn't have any desire to do something well, it would be hard to go through the work of putting together a speech and then trying to do it and getting on an airplane, all this stuff. That can be a serving thing. you know, And to get compensation or whatever, that can serve it in your life. Don't worry about... I have intellectual purity. I never think about anything that's self-oriented. No, do it. But why are you doing it? That's the whole thing we're talking about. The motivation, why we do things, gives us, can give us this protection from the web of the mind. It has for me. 
I hope some little part of it can do that for you. Thanks for letting me talk about it. Hey, everybody, hopefully you enjoyed that talk. I want to say thanks so much to the Conference for Consciousness and Human Evolution for letting us post that footage. Check them out at tccche.org. There's all kinds of information on upcoming events that they have. Thanks so much again. Now we're going to go to, there's actually a Q&A after my talk where we got to dive a little more into the ideas coming up there. So hope you enjoy. I'm still up here. Appreciate this. The standing is great for my love of self-image. Um, I'm still up here because I, I know that we started a little late. So I'm trying to get it so you can go to whatever you need to go to on time. If we want to do some Q&A, then that's just fine with me. So if there are any questions, but... If there's not, that's fine. I know it's really awkward when somebody says, are there any questions? And there's no questions. I don't care. It's not going to hurt my feelings. So, and you can leave right now. I'm not, if you're leaving right now, I'm not like, what? You didn't want to hear my answer to some question that I hadn't prepared at all? So, but if anybody wants to talk about it, we can do some here. Curtis, yeah. Could you say a little bit more about Emanuel Swedenborg and just who he was and in a nutshell what he did? That's my job. Thanks. Yep. <laughs> um, so you might think, uh, why would I go around not just talking about spirituality stuff, but like drag this strange figure of Emanuel Swedenborg into it? A couple hundred year old scientist, you look up a picture of him and he's got a wig on, you know, it's this weird conversation starter, and aren't, isn't that outdated? And um, there is treasure in there. And I think Swedenborg is tapping into the same world as the near-death experience that we heard about in Pym's talk. There, Raymond Moody, who you guys know Raymond Moody, right? He, he, he was the guy who coined the term near-death experience. He started that sort of the modern NDE research phenomenon. In his first book called Life After Life, which I think was published in the 80s, he had a whole section in there that was about Swedenborg and how similar a couple hundred years ago before there was such a thing, Swedenborg's world was to the world of the near-death experience. But the cool thing, what I, and I love near-death experiences, the really cool thing about what Swedenborg wrote is he was this meticulous scientist and he was having these, not just one or two experiences, but all the time and, and documenting it and categorizing things and looking through things with that same scientific rigor so that he breaks it down into tools so that someone like me who hasn't had some kind of spiritual experience like that can take it and apply it even if it's old to stuff that's going on in my mind right now. And I didn't always realize that that's the power of what he had but once I started seeing for myself and this is the tool that's been helping me yeah, so what I want to do is make that accessible to people so they'll get what's in it, and if they like it, they can they take it with them and use it. So that's a little bit... i got to stop banging this thing around. That's a little bit about uh, Swedenborg. So that was a, that was a good question. Um, any other questions before we go about any of the this stuff? Oh, do we have to... Yeah. I think they're going to mic you. I see people running around. Find you, but brilliant. Thank you. I just want to say a great thank you to you for bringing these ideas into oh, awareness well, here. Um, the cellular, cellular state of mind and um, what you've been talking about—that's been like a bombshell. I mean, a, oh, a really big, a piece. I would say maybe a piece of a jigsaw for me. Um, so. It's a simple analogy, but um, makes a big difference. And I can really 
hold on to that and see that and see how to improve my life using that. So thank you very much. Well, okay. <laughs> so, so that's why I needed to come here. <laughs> if that, um, so that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So thank you so much for... Um, for saying that, and you're gonna, you're gonna, that idea will be in your mind, and you're going to get insights and in, in ways to use it that I never thought of. This is what we see when we put this stuff online and people can write in their comments. That it's not like, oh, I, under, I, I know everything about this, and you're going to learn something about it that I didn't, I didn't think about and didn't see, and take it somewhere and then let me know. Or write us a message saying, oh, this is how this has helped me, because everybody, uh, Swedenborg talks about how everybody's got their own unique love and wisdom. So you feel things in a in particular unique way. This is a cool dynamic. Is you might think I'm saying evaporate into the uh, the great body and you and self doesn't really exist and, and you don't really matter. No. When you zoom up in a body, there are very distinct individual cells. Everything has its own membranes. You are yourself, but the connection is through what you do together and what you love and care about. So it's not, uh, I forget what I was talking about, but something really good, and that's an important point. <laughs> All right. Um, so do we want to, do we have time for more? Do I see somebody right in the front here? Okay, uh, microphone. Mike, we've got somebody in the very front row. Yeah. If you could stand up, please, so Yanni can see you. Thank you. I'm just wondering if... If there's somebody who, um, who's really depressive and is in this hole, is there a way to approach them? Or do they have to wait for this ping? Yeah, right, right. So she, she's saying, is there some way to... That makes me, like, I get a, that makes me a little bit emotional. Because I, I know um, that hole, and I know what it's like to have somebody that you care about that's there. And you're just like, how can I reach them, you know? And you don't know. Can I show them a weird talk about the categories of love? Are they going to get that, or are they going to run away? Um, let's see. I, I think that the gesture is, is nice. And, and what I've found is there's certainly been times where people, you try to share something with somebody that meant something to you, and they say, well, this doesn't do anything for me. But I don't think that that, that makes things worse. You know, um, and there's been other times when people that I thought wouldn't be receptive at all do have this this like amazing oh that helped me in, in some way, and that's like that's beyond the best feeling in the world because you know um, the loneliness of that and unprofessional sorry you know the the loneliness of that and getting people that's that is exactly what we're trying to do, and I don't mean we like my company like what everybody's trying to do is how do we get in there we're all these think about the, the state of the human race we're all these little scared amoebas in all these different directions and how do you bring them in and show them like we're here for you and we're going to take care of that and you help where you can help i don't i don't know i don't have a good answer but i know that i've seen just a lot of amazing things when, when i first set out how do you think i felt when i was first going to go to youtube and talk about stuff like this nobody's going to like this it's not going to do anything for anyone. This is my weird little obsession with this obscure thing that doesn't. But it wasn't like right away people were gravitating to it. It's not, and people do that to a lot of different things that are out there, a lot of different tool sets. But I was surprised at how much uh, we can actually create things that, that help people. Um, so 
that's good, and I think the, this is why it's so important for effort to be applied like you guys are doing here. Let's take this seriously. We had somebody here talking um, about social networks you know, when we were all up here, and it does strike me as a little bit sad in some ways that, that all the smartest people in the world and all the greatest effort is going into those things that we don't even know if they make life better or not. Um, I, I, I don't know. But yet, the, the stuff you're talking about, how do you get somebody out of that hole? I mean, there should be all the smartest people in the world working on that together. So part of what we're trying to do in using you know, art and media and technology is to try to, yeah, can we do spiritual things with the same tenacity and the same excellence? You know, obviously, it's a big aspiration, but because the, the cause is so important, and that's what we're trying to do. So that's good. Okay, I think we still got time. I saw somebody, sorry I'm focusing on the front so much. After this, you guys can come talk to me. I have to be on the airplane in a little while, so I may not be able to talk forever, but I'll talk for as long as I can after this, so yeah. Um, it's quite difficult to share because it's emotional. I just had an aha moment, and I would like to thank you this conference. Um, um, yes, two days ago, I was on the other side, and I felt I'm not kind enough because I, someone was talking loud, and I wanted to listen the speakers, and then I took on myself because I felt I'm not. I should be kinder, you know. And today, I also struggled sitting. I nearly had anxiety attack, and. I didn't understand why. Um, I'm counselor in training. I run community organization. I do stuff. I have a knowledge, but I'm still discovering a lot of things that are result of childhood trauma. And I wonder, you know, how to manage and how to be kind because today I realized that me being irritable, it's actually the result of my childhood trauma that I cannot sometimes manage and I'm not aware. I think I'm, you know, not kind enough, but actually I'm struggling as a, as a PTSD, you know, result. So I wonder how we can, without like me having knowledge, you know, psychology knowledge, I wouldn't, it would be difficult to actually be aware this is the result of trauma. So how you know, apart from depression, I'm talking about anxiety attacks and, you know, struggles in social situations, touch, for example, not having enough space in here. And I would like to thank you to a particular volunteer who helped me to sit here because, you know, I would really struggle. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, and what you're talking about is your kind of head chart, you know, like this, this is what's coming at me right now. And uh, something that always struck me, you'd think I was talking about sort of this love of usefulness, heaven kind of mindset, right? And you would think that, well, heaven or, or this really loves to, like, part of what it does, like it, it wants to help people and if it notices someone who's not acting from good motives, it gets out and crushes them, right? You might think that. But actually, Swedenborg makes this fascinating claim that the, the mindset of loving goodness and truth, um, it, its greatest joy is to look for the good in other people. So this would apply to when and you would, might think, oh, I'm getting these self-critical thoughts in my head that are, you know, this is me really noticing how I'm not good. But actually, that the angelic mindset is to, to not, um, it doesn't want to, 
critique you for being not, for not performing up to whatever you feel like you should perform to. That always you want to look at yourself with a kind of love of like, you're trying well. Do you ever have people get to the near-death experience when they have these life reviews, when they look over their life? They see these hard things, but I've read a lot of these, and it's always like nobody's saying, I wish I didn't have that life review. It's always there's so much love over the shoulder that it's really about a, a process for them. So there is inherent in this, I don't know if this is a very good answer or not, but there is inherent in this, you, you don't need to have that burden of like, part of trying to be good is harshly critiquing myself. You know, that, that it's actually, you're good. And people who are trying, you're, you're good. Once I remember a friend of mine saying like, evil people aren't worried that they're evil. You know, like if, if you're struggling, you're probably, you know, you're on the, on the like if you're, if you're having any kind of, uh, am I being good or not? That is the work. That is the work. And, and it's not like you're going to get up to this top thing and then you never go back down. We, you always are cycling through, okay, I'm struggling this. And, and maybe if you're talking about like what's it all for and usefulness, so you, you have all this stuff that's going on, but like what you just articulated there, that's really important to somebody. And you know, when you think about this is always how these things go. Is like you, you're, through your, you're in the trenches and you're going through your struggles, which sound really intense. And what you're going to learn that, that empowers you in the practice you're learning to do, there's going to be somebody who your particular way of, of experiencing that and looking through life is going to lead you to be able to be equipped to help them, right? Um, so again, I wish I could do more for you. This is why we're trying to figure out like, okay, yeah, what, what are the answers to that? So I appreciate you bringing it up and thanks for being willing to, to share that. Uh, we want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. As a nonprofit, we depend on donor support to enable us to continue creating high quality programming. This season, we're featuring the opportunity to become a member of our community of sustaining supporters by signing up to give a monthly donation. If you've benefited from our content, please consider going to otlemonthly.cosbox.com to join the central network of people in the world who make our work possible. Our sustaining supporters are the backbone of what we do at Off the Left Eye. Your support helps the ideas in our content reach and nourish thousands of people every week around the globe. We couldn't do it without you. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins.